Today's episode of Dog Nation Daily is brought to you by Pella Window and Door of Georgia, viewed to be the best. Presented by DogNation.com, this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Here's your host, Brandon Adams. So obviously, I told you all last week that I thought Saturday was going to be a really big day for Georgia. That's what I expected to be. Georgia had really throttled South Carolina in each of the last two years. National championship seasons, Georgia looked as much like a national champ against South Carolina as any other team that had played. And I assume that Saturday, and what I believe is going to be a go for three and 23 year for Georgia, I assume Saturday would be kind of very much the same type of thing. But I also told you, if for some reason that wasn't true, and that would prove to be a little bit of an indicator of kind of where Georgia is at this point in this season, perhaps not quite being through three games what it was in its championship seasons of the last two years. And I have to say, while I'm not panicked or while I'm not certainly ready to change my end of season prediction about these dogs yet, I do think it's fairly obvious that at the current moment, Georgia is not right now what it would have been in the early stages of last season, where it destroyed Oregon, throttled South Carolina. We've seen Georgia play three games. A quarter of the regular season is now done, and we really haven't seen Georgia look, I would say, like an elite team yet. They really haven't played what I would consider a truly great game as of yet. Will they play one in the future? Almost certainly we believe they will, but they have not really done that as of yet. And so while I shrugged off the UT Martin game, told you I didn't really think it mattered, kind of had the same response to the Ball State game, no big deal to me. These are games of very little consequence. I thought that Saturday's result was at least a little bit telling, and I think we need to talk about what was told by the result that we got with Georgia kind of once again looking eh, not quite as good as many of us would have liked. And most of this, I think for a lot of you, is going to center around once again for the third straight game, a slow start for Georgia. Not very much to show for the first half at all. And in the postgame press conference on Saturday, Kirby Smart was asked about that directly, and Smart did not shy away from saying, hey, the first half right now is not as good as Georgia wants it to be. This is what Kirby said. Kirby, three, three games in a row, you guys have had slow starts. What can you put your finger on? What are you seeing out there? Uh, we adjust well at halftime, and we play really good in the second half. What can you say about the first half? I can say that we're going to play good in the second half. We're going to try to figure out what's going on in the first half. So Kirby kind of jokes about that there, but obviously what he's saying is true. I don't really know what to say, but the first half, thankfully we're playing better in the second half, but the first half's clearly not uh, what it is or not what it should be. And this is the point in which a lot of you, and I'm obviously seeing the stuff on social media and our comment sections live on video in any way that folks are kind of interacting with Dog Nation, a lot of you want to point the finger of blame and either like say Mike Bobo's offensive coordinator or Carson Beck as quarterback or whatever else. And We're going to try to talk about all of those issues on today's show, but for me personally, I'm not as interested in the why right now as I am the what. In other words, I'm not really looking to kind of say, well, who's to blame it on? Is it this guy? Is it this guy? Is it that thing or whatever else? I'm not as interested in the why right now as I'm in the what. And to kind of further, I guess, accentuate that point, for me, this goes beyond just a slow start offensively, you know, kind of a bad first half, because whenever the drought is coming, beginning of the game, end of the game, whatever else, the what for me for Georgia right now, and the lingering concern I have about Georgia through three games here at the moment is Georgia's just not scoring enough points. Whether you blame somebody for that, or you blame the first half slow starts for that, or you point the finger at whatever else, whatever the 
finger should be pointed at the what for Georgia right now the biggest issue for Georgia is dogs are just not scoring enough points and I want to kind of highlight this a little bit I'm going to try to give you a lot of information over the course of the next couple of minutes without hopefully giving you too much information that all this becomes kind of gobbledygook right now Georgia is just 30th nationally in points per game that is a far cry from where Georgia was in the Todd Munkin era last two national championship seasons last season georgia was fourth in points scored per game in 2021 they were ninth in scoring points per game in another national championship season what we've seen from three games through georgia is a little bit of a callback unfortunately to that era of uga prior to todd munkin getting here last season prior to todd munkin being here in 2019 that was the year in which georgia was just 49th nationally in scoring that season it's a big reason that todd munkin was brought here he was brought here to score more points and from almost the word go that's exactly what georgia did specifically in the kinds of games that georgia played on saturday against sec competition in munkin's sec career he played 28 games against an sec foe and in those 28 games munkin's offenses averaged 37 points per game now admittedly I didn't go through there and subtract the defensive scores and things like that but let's just sort of assume this is kind of a wash on both sides in the 28 games that Munkin played against SEC foes Georgia scored 37 points per game in the 28 SEC games for Georgia prior to Munkin getting here Georgia scored just 31 points per game so with Munkin at the helm leading the Georgia offense against an SEC team Munkin's presence here was worth about an extra touchdown per game when facing SEC foes which resulted in Georgia teams the last two years that were top 10 scoring last year they're in the top five and lo and behold when you match that explosive of an offense with an elite defense the end result are national championships Georgia's obviously won the last two But now you look at this team here this year against South Carolina on Saturday, scoring just 24 points, a slow start in the first half, kind of being blamed for part of the reason why. And specifically to kind of drill down on this even further, Georgia only had the ball just one time in the first quarter. These new clock rules, I hate them. I think many of you rightly hate them as well. It certainly was a problem for Georgia on Saturday where South Carolina gets the ball first, has a long drive, marches down and scores. Georgia gets the ball next, has a long drive, does not result in a uh, touchdown. All of a sudden, the first quarter is just gone. Poof. Well, Kirby Smart was also asked about that after the game on Saturday, about how these new clock rules are impacting Georgia in terms of trying to score points and trying to kind of maintain the edge and advantage over lesser teams who in Saturday's case with South Carolina played much closer than the experts would expect. Uh, this is what Kirby Smart said about the impact of these new clock rules. They play with pace. I mean, for them to play with pace, it's a long drive. you got to get off the field. And I told them, I said, you know, look, we're going to get six possessions in the second half. I don't know how many we end up getting. So we're going to get six possessions, and we're going to have to score on four out of six. And we're going to win one moment at a time, and we're going to go out and do it over and over and again. And outside of uh, the possessions that ended in field goals in the second half that we we ended up missing but outside of that I thought we did really well with our possessions more on the missed field goals by the way in a moment but when it comes to clock issues I think what you're seeing for Georgia right now is they are highlighting something that's sort of always been true for Georgia Georgia has always been content to play at a pretty deliberate pace this has been true every year that Kirby Smart's been here it's even been you know pretty true during the Todd Munkin era there as well and it's once again true here right now Georgia is 50th in the country in plays per game. They are 91st in the country in 
plays per second. In other words, this is how fast you play, right? You know, how many plays do you run per second? Georgia's 91st in that category, 50th in total plays per game. Georgia just does not play nearly as fast as the fastest teams in the country. But when you choose to play slow and the clock is moving as fast as it is right now, you're not going to get the football nearly as much, right? So that's the issue is that the current clock rules that are in place right now are highlighting Georgia's tendency to play at a deliberate pace. And on Saturday, it caused them some real trouble. And you kind of foresee that it could cause them some potential trouble in the future as well, especially when these drives come up with no points. Because the other thing that you're going to mention here is in terms of Georgia just not scoring enough on Saturday, you'll say, well, B.A., you know, Georgia also missed two field goals. Peyton Woodring right now having some growing pains as he steps into the role of the uh, Georgia kicker. Kirby Smart addressed that there. But in the other comment that Smart made about the field goals that were missed there's another point that he brought up that I think has to be kind of addressed here too that in addition to the missed field goals being a problem the fact that George was out there even trying those field goals sort of speaks to a different problem there as well this is Kirby Smart going into more detail on the Woodring misses the field goal misses from Saturday Kirby one more time well I've seen better in practice you know he's been really consistent in practice uh, and uh, you know I don't know we'll go back watch the tape look at it and Continue to reevaluate it because we got we got to do something there. We got to be able to score points. I'd like to not have to kick those field goals. That's the first answer. What Smart says there at the end, you shouldn't miss. He says, "Hey, we got to score more points. We got to kick those field goals." But he says. I would like to not even be in the position to even try those field goals. I'd like to not even be settling for a field goal right there. I would have much rather had a touchdown. And just like the new clock rules are kind of accentuating Georgia's preference for playing a little slower than some teams do, a little bit more deliberate pace, the missed field goals on Saturday kind of also highlight what is a little bit of a persistent year-over-year-over-year issue. Georgia, you'd be hard-pressed to find an issue in which Georgia's consistently not among the very best teams in the country almost every facet of football if you look at national rankings Georgia's like near the top in almost every category across the board certainly the last couple of years and in most times in the Kirby Smart era Georgia has been like near the national elite in almost every category but there's one area in which Georgia pretty consistently is actually not always that great that's converting red zone trips into touchdowns settling for field goals or if a field goal gets missed coming with no points at all That's one of those issues in which Georgia has had some issues in the past. Right now, they're just 91st nationally in percentage of red zone trips resulting in touchdowns. That's obviously a terrible number, but it's never really been a number in which Georgia traditionally is great. Uh, Look at the last four full seasons. This excludes 2020. Last four full seasons. Georgia is 30th, 63rd, 45th, 35th in terms of its national rank of percentage of red zone trips that result in touchdowns so when you see a couple of field goals get missed on Saturday Kirby Smart says hey I don't even want to settle for those field goals anyway what he's talking about is drives that stall and don't result in touchdowns and for whatever reason Georgia's just sort of had that issue in the past so let me kind of recap what I've said so far and then let me try to make a little bit of a final point there are a couple of things that seemingly are sort of always true for Georgia Georgia always likes to play a little slower than some of the other teams in the country. Georgia, for whatever reason, has had some issues throughout the years in terms of converting red zone trips into touchdowns. Why ever that is, it's just sort of year over year over year kind of true for Georgia. And yet under Todd Munkin, that didn't seem to be much of a problem. Even though Georgia wasn't great in the red zone, it was still among the best teams nationally in scoring, including against SEC competition. 
And even though Georgia never really even under Todd Munkin played all that fast necessarily, the slow pace with which Georgia played did not hurt it offensively. It was still among the very best scoring teams nationally. So let me ask you a question. This is not a rhetorical question. This is a question we're going to answer for you. Why is it that Georgia was so good at scoring under Todd Munkin while still playing slow and while not being great in the red zone necessarily in a way they were not offensively prior to Munkin getting here? Because Todd Munkin was very good at creating explosive plays. Georgia took so much advantage of its offensive possessions by producing explosive plays that it was okay to play slow because Georgia was so ruthlessly, lethally efficient in the drives that it did have. And it was okay that maybe they weren't so great from, like, say, the 20-yard and in. And for Georgia, their red zone issues almost always seem to come, like, 10-yard and in for whatever reason. It was okay that Georgia wasn't a great red zone team because guess what? Georgia was liable to score before they got to the red zone. They were just so explosive they were able to avoid that. But right now, Georgia is not nearly as explosive through three games as it was the last two years under Todd Munkin. As I'm going to choose to measure this, there's different definitions for explosive, but let me just use one here. Georgia's 25th nationally right now in plays of 20 or more yards. Last year, as you've heard me say before, they were first. Nobody in the country had more explosive plays than Georgia did a year ago, at least plays of 20 or more yards. They had 98. For all the attention the Georgia defense got, Georgia was first nationally in offensive plays last year of 20 or more yards. That wasn't a fluke because the year before that, in a year in which the greatest defense of all time in 2021 was getting so much attention on the offense side of the ball all Georgia was was tied for seventh nationally with 80 plays of 20 or more yards in other words the defense was so good it was overshadowing the fact that Georgia was having kind of a historic year offensively there as well that Munkin was so good at creating explosive plays those explosive plays led to points those points led to wins Right now, Georgia's not producing enough explosive plays to lead to the kind of points that it's been scoring the last couple of years. And if it doesn't turn up its scoring very, very quick and and get much better in that category, then eventually a loss is going to come, either at some point in the regular season or the kind of postseason loss that ends Georgia's hopes of having a chance to go for three and 23. Now, all of this can be fixed. I'm not necessarily smart enough to tell you how, but I am smart enough to tell you that it can be fixed. But I think it's important to identify what the issue is, whether it's a first half drought or some sort of issue in the second half, maybe that comes later in the year, or whether it's this guy's fault or that guy's fault or this thing's fault or whatever else. Georgia's just not producing enough points right now. And the thing that's produced points for Georgia the last couple of years are explosive plays. Explosive plays lead to points. Points need lead to wins. Right now, Georgia's got to find a little bit more explosiveness on offense until it does it is going to be very vulnerable as the nation's number one team my name is brandon adams and this is dog nation daily the daily podcast for georgia bulldogs fans presented today by pella window and door of georgia we are happy to have you with us no matter how you get to us today live on video we start 9 45 first and 15 dognation.com dog nation app 10 a.m after that across all other video platforms uh, we're on the radio with our friends at Athens Sports Radio 960 The Ref. We're available as a podcast, all the podcast platforms. That's the on-demand audio way to listen to our program. We really appreciate you doing all that. And a big thanks to our friends at Pella, Window and Door of Georgia, for making today's show possible. Energy-efficient windows and doors, that's what Pella Window and Door of Georgia is all about. And when it gets to be kind of fall time of year, this morning is a little bit breezy, right? It's like uh, I kind of enjoyed that. It was like 50-something degrees when I was driving in today. kind of felt like fall a little bit. Well, 
as it gets later in the fall, wind's blowing a lot more. That means debris blowing around all over the place. And you don't want that draft coming in your house. You know how when you walk around kind of an old house, you sort of just sort of feel that little draftiness. You feel air from the outside coming in where it's not supposed to be. Or sometimes that debris even gets kind of blown into the house or you know residue from that debris. With Pella windows and doors, that's not going to be an issue. Your home's going to feel great on the inside, and it's going to look great on the outside, which makes you a good neighbor, but it also kind of makes you... A uh, wise investor potentially too, because you're talking about the kind of thing that improves your curb appeal. Better curb appeal can lead to higher resale value. So you've got so many great incentives to want to check out my friends at Pella Window and Door of Georgia right now. Talk to one of the Pella experts. Have them in kind of a no pressure way explain to you why the Pella product is so much better. The windows, the doors. You know why Pella can provide you so much more. It's can be done virtually, you know, through like the magic of technology. You can go visit them in their experience there in Duluth. They'll come visit you right there in your home, and you can talk to them about the product line, the installation options, if necessary, the financing options there too, and great savings here at the moment there as well because between now and the end of the month, that's September 30th, you can get 10% off your entire project or no payments, no interest for 12 months. So please, find them online, PellaofGA.com slash dognation. That's PellaofGA.com slash dognation. Or give them a call, 678-638-1429. That's 678-638-1429. Just tell them that BA from Dog Nation Daily sent you because I know they're going to take really good care of you. It's Pella Window and Door of Georgia. It's viewed to be the best. All right, we're going to talk to John Stinchcomb in a moment. And I'm going to let John tell me where, if anywhere, I got it wrong as far as my diagnosis of Georgia here right now. They need to score more points. I think that Georgia's a great defensive team. I think Saturday, even though they gave up a couple of early touchdowns, you saw the remnants of what can be a great defensive team. But Georgia's got to be more explosive offensively than it was on Saturday. Explosive plays lead to points. Points lead to wins. you got to get more explosiveness on offense. We'll let John tell me if I got that right or if I got that wrong as far as uh, Saturday's concern. We'll do that here coming up. Also, prior to that, I want to go around the doghouse. And this is another issue we got to get into John Stinchcomb about here is that Georgia has dealt with its share of injuries. Obviously, we know that Lad McConkey did not play yet uh, Saturday again. He continues to be dealing with a back injury that's not even really led him to dress out yet this season. So this is for McConkey's a fairly serious deal here at the moment. Uh, Georgia's Javon Bullard, arguably most important defensive player last year during the college football playoff. He missed Saturday's game, was dressed, just didn't play. So Georgia's had its share of injuries. But I would say that thus far, the most significant injury of the season occurred during the game when Amarius Mims had to leave with a left ankle injury. Now, Georgia, to its credit, kind of weathered that storm pretty well during that game. But Mims, I think, is one of Georgia's most important players. So let's hear Kirby Smart here on the subject of Mims, what's, what was known about his ankle injury on Saturday, and kind of what the Georgia offensive line did after Mim stepped away and the fact that according to Kirby this offensive line was kind of ready for that challenge because of the preparation they've gone through here's Kirby Smart again well they practice that way all the time so it's, uh, it's kind of what we do you know we put the next man up and uh, I don't know it's an ankle sprain I don't know how significant no, no clue uh, seems like ankle sprain is all over the country right now because everybody's got ankle sprains we've got ankle sprains everywhere um, but it's, I don't know how significant it is, so we'll find out. But I was proud of Trust being able to bounce out there and play. If you remember Trust's history, he's been out there and played, uh, I guess, two years ago, three years ago. He's played out there before, and uh, I can't say how he played, but uh, we were able to run the ball. So keep this in mind, as I'm speaking to you right now, we are live here during the 10 o'clock hour. We're probably about an hour and a half away from a live update from Kirby Smart. The Dog Nation YouTube page will have this for you. Uh, a live update from Kirby Smart on the, I guess, the, 
reevaluated status of Mims after that ankle injury. But as Kirby says, when he goes out, Xavier Trust has to kick outside to tackle Austin Blasky, who perhaps would have been uh, uh, you know, the number one backup there to, to Marius Mims. He's also been dealing with his own injury situation here right now. So if Xavier Trust is going to have to become a starter at tackling, I would presume for at least a couple of games, just on the basis of the injury, this is my best guess. Um, if Trust is going to become a starter at tackle, that's you know going to put your offensive line depth into a little bit of a spotlight here. Now, we're going to hear from John Stinchcomb in a moment, but a couple of weeks ago we were kind of joking about this, that Georgia was in a pretty good spot, kind of a luxurious position if we were spending any time being worried about who Georgia's seventh best offensive lineman is. But to be fair here, college football is kind of one of those things where you know, you find out about your depth pretty quick because, you know, offensive line, especially in Kirby Smart, talking about some of these lower extremities, ankles, feet, things like that. Seems like a lot of linemen kind of deal with this kind of stuff. It doesn't take very long for some of that offensive line depth, some of those backup type guys to become pretty important in the minds of a fan. Now, the good news is Georgia's rotated there plenty. It seems like Dylan Fairchild's a guy who's really ready for his moment. We're excited about Dylan getting a chance to do that, but kind of finding out how this Georgia offensive line, who we thought on paper looked great to begin the season, kind of how they look after a little bit of a kind of a weather test, a little bit of a little bit of a stress test, how they look after that. That's going to be of paramount concern here right now. Obviously, one of the guys who feels like Georgia's more than ready to pass this test with flying colors is Georgia quarterback Carson Beck, who plays behind this offensive line, and on Saturday said that he really feels like that Georgia's got just as much talented depth behind its starters as it does right there with its starting unit. In fact, he thinks that's the envy of the rest of the SEC. Uh, This was good from Carson giving praise to his offensive linemen, including their backups, once again going back to Saturday. I mean, they played hard. Obviously, he's a big part of our offensive line. I mean, Right tackle six eight however big he is. I mean he's he's a great player, but um, we got guys that are too deep at the offensive line. Um, I truly think that we have two starting offensive lines, like SEC starting lines. Um, Ten guys, twelve guys that could all go in there and play and start. So I'm super proud of them, the way that they played. Um, I mean we we run behind them. They lead our team. So you love to hear that. Beck has a lot of confidence in that depth. Georgia obviously has been cultivating that depth by playing these guys in games. So that's certainly good to see Jared Wilson among the rest. I mentioned uh, Dylan Fairchild obviously a little earlier. You know, you've seen Wilson kind of rotating there plenty there too. So Georgia's clearly been taking a um, specific challenge of getting its other offensive linemen ready to play. Beck likes what he sees from them. But we also have to be very honest here. The context, the Mims injury comes within the you know from the standpoint that through two and a half games the two games against lesser competition the first half of the South Carolina game this Georgia offensive line I think most of would say has not really played as advertised South Carolina had a lot of uh, uh, success with pass pressure in the first half of that game some of that was bringing the extra guy so that's probably a lot for the offensive line to necessarily you know deal with but you know I don't know that those of us who thought this Georgia offensive line was going to be great still think it will be great here this season I don't know that we've seen the highest level of performance, the greatness yet from this group, and the Mims injury probably complicates that a little bit more. Beck says he likes the depth. What we've seen with our own eyes from guys like Fairchild and Wilson would lead us to believe that, yeah, Georgia's probably in pretty good shape here. Uh, Austin Blasky coming back, that's a valuable commodity whenever Georgia gets him back fully healthy too. But for now, the injury bug's kind of biting on this offensive line a bit. Marius Mims, we think, is overall one of Georgia's most important players. And certainly it was a little bit of a gasp moment when he left that game with an injury on Saturday. So that is Around the Doghouse here on Dog Nation Daily, presented by Pella Window of Door, uh, Pella Window and Door of Georgia Today. Now, before we're done on today's show, I want to get more into detail about the Carson Beck performance from Saturday, because Beck's obviously 
in the uh, spotlight here as a quarterback what have we seen from him through three starts and you know what's left for him to do with one more tune-up before Georgia goes back on the road for the first time in the 2023 season second chance at SEC play against Auburn coming up two weeks from now there'll be a lot of eyes on Carson Beck as Georgia gets ready to do that what have we learned from Beck through three games what does Kirby Smart think about Carson Beck through three games and what does Beck think about his own performance we'll talk about that some before we're done because obviously Carson is very heavily in the spotlight here for now but for the moment before we get to any of that and the really odd situation at Alabama the embarrassing loss for Tennessee before we get to any of that let's touch on the other issues with the Georgia Bulldogs not just the negative stuff that I've mentioned but also some positive some bright spots from the win against South Carolina we'll cover all of that right now as we do a Marlowe's Tavern insider update and we bring John Stinchcomb on Dog Nation Daily. From Athens and across the SEC or wherever the recruiting trail may lead, here's a DogNation.com insider. John, we need your calm and your measured voice today. There's some concern around Dog Nation here. <laughs> not panic. I mean, we're not panic. We're certainly not. But um, I expected Saturday to be a real flex from Georgia, and it wasn't. Uh, it was a game that, frankly, uh, Georgia had to play its best at the end just to win. So we're recalibrating a little bit here right now, and I want to deal with some of those issues with you. Offensive line to start with, um, I don't know that it's been a great performance yet from the Georgia offensive line. Second half, certainly uh, pretty good on Saturday, but had some issues with the South Carolina pass rush in the first half of the Gamecocks. Uh, you go back to the two lesser opponents, Georgia offensive line, yeah, probably not great, maybe in either of those two games. And now all of a sudden, Marius Mims is injured. So let's talk about both the Mims injury and kind of the offensive line around that right now. You're someone who knows that position group very, very well. What do you think of the current status of the Georgia offensive line and specifically how the Marius Mims injury impacts all of that? Yeah, it hasn't met expectations. Recalibration is, is called for. And it starts up front. We're a quarter of the way through the season. You're three games in, and now we've played an SEC opponent. So we've got a body of work that you can evaluate and, and offer a critique. And candidly, the offensive line has underperformed. And, and that's not just because we have a first-year starter at left tackle. As a group, as a whole, they haven't played to the level of expectations. And Losing Amarius Mims, who has been the best offensive lineman in that front, it hurts. And uh, you know, I, I, let's let's share the blame across the board, um, not just with some of the the youth that's being thrust into this position of playing and earnest at left tackle, but you know, we need more from Cedric Von Prong Granger in the middle and uh, Tate Ratledge, who at times is dominant, and, and at other times it's consistency. If you're going to evaluate an offensive line, you're not looking for highlight reels. What you're looking for is consistency. And if you get highlight reel material along the way, that's a bonus. Uh, so far, this group has not provided that consistency for this offense to perform. And, you know, I said, Let, let's expound. You haven't even asked, but you pulled my string, B.A., so I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> You know, for all those that are making these comparisons for this offensive group to last year's group, they're not as good. And and that is across the board. You look at the position groups. You lose Broderick and, and McClendon, two great SEC tackles, and 
offensive line performance. You look at the running backs, and health is very much a factor there. You look at the tight end room, losing Darnell Washington, not having Austin Blasky available, and really only two scholarship tight ends who they're, they're you know, Brock Bowers is a great receiving tight end and at times a really good inline blocking tight end. But none of the, nobody on the roster is Darnell Washington. And we lose the opportunity to bring in that sixth offensive lineman for those run-heavy uh, situations. That affects the run game. It affects your play calling. It affects your play calling when we don't have a healthy stable of backs. That's been at front and foremost in, in what you as you evaluate this offense. That's a factor. For those who are critical of Mike Bobo, every time you see Dylan Bell in the backfield, you should tip your cap to Mike Bobo for being creative enough to say, hey, we've got a wide receiver that can play running back that we can create opportunities for. Arguably our second best back this year has been a walk-on and a guy that when his number has been called in cash where he's, he's excelled. So, there's been some create creativity in those spaces due to, uh, you know, it's this is a different group. You can't measure on that same scale as what we saw last year. As a matter of fact, going into last season, we're saying this group, this team can rely more heavily on this offense because we're expecting more. And to think that that's the standard year in and year out, I think is uh, – probably unwise and that doesn't fall at the feet of Mike Bobo or Carson Beck it's a reality of football that there is turnover and there that this team will get better this offensive group will continue to get better but they are not the same offense that we saw win a national championship last year and that's not only because Todd Munkin left the building sorry I just uh, there's so much to talk about no there is yeah and, and there's so many uh, loud voices out there that you know uh, some of it's based on truth but some of it is is has a very shaky foundation and needs to be called out so I think that's really well said and I want to get more into the Bobo part of this in a moment with you let me do one more thing on Mims before we get there as an offensive lineman I'm curious about your thoughts about an ankle injury here because we're gonna hear from Kirby Smart about this in a little bit and I'm guessing Kirby will give us more of an update but the extent of my medical expertise is that if you're as big as Marius Mims is, 6'8", 300, whatever pounds, that a stable ankle is pretty important to keep you standing upright. Like, how, how, I mean, how long could an ankle injury like this linger for a guy like Mims, and how effective could he be if he is dealing with it? In other words, are we looking at Mims being on the shelf for a good while, if you had to guess? Uh, it's hard to say, depending on what grade the, the injury is. I'll say this. I'd much rather see an offensive lineman with an ankle injury than a wide receiver or okay. a linebacker or anyone in the secondary who has to cut on a regular basis. Now, you know, Mims is a monster of a man. And uh, I've seen guys like Jonathan Ogden, whose career ended because of a toe injury. So having a solid base is very important, but... Um, you know, it's one of those things where Mims isn't going to have to cut on a dime out there. It's going to be a matter of pain tolerance and and functional mobility. And if he doesn't, uh, if he's not 100%, he's still, in my opinion, one of our best options. Now, that's not to say rush the man back out there 
because if you're uh, the number one program in the country, you expect to have some level of depth. And I think that includes being able to get a guy like Blasky back in who's dealt with, you know, his MCL for a while. And you know, the hope is he's close enough to where uh, maybe he can fill that gap until Mims returns. But make no mistake, this, this team is much better off with Amarius on the field. All right, and then going to the topic that you kind of touched on a moment ago there as well, I want to get more into the Mike Bobo thing. And, John, I think you understand the philosophy of our show here from the standpoint that we are the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. What that means is for me is is I want my show to reflect the fan conversation, and I at least want their voice to feel like it's heard on a show like this, whether I happen to agree with the overall fan consensus or not. I want our conversation to reflect that fan chatter and there's no doubt that through three games especially after Saturday the hottest topic among Georgia fans right now is Mike Bobo's return as Georgia offensive coordinator a lot of fans are kind of wanting to put a finger of blame on him for what has been a a less than stellar performance I would say certainly uh, in first halves if not you know the uh, season overall and while I don't go as far as some Georgia fans do in saying Mike Bobo's the reason this is not happening as I said off the top of the program, Georgia is right now producing far fewer explosive plays through three games than it did in the last two years. And that reduction in explosive plays is also going to lead into a reduction of points. And if Georgia doesn't score a lot more in its future SEC games than it did on Saturday, I do believe they're vulnerable for a loss eventually and certainly quite vulnerable to have this season fall short of the national championship expectations i don't know how much of that blame that mike bobo deserves i'm not really probably smart enough to figure that out but while i'm not that comfortable in diagnosing the why i can circle the what georgia's got to be a lot more explosive and a lot more productive offensively i believe i know you touched on bobo a moment ago but would you mind going into more detail about that right now yeah, absolutely. I am not a Bobo hater, nor am I a Bobo defender. I think, you know, you, you can spread blame and credit across the board. The easiest places to do that is the coordinator position and the quarterback position. But if you look at the film, there is a number of times where Bobo has dialed up shot plays. The flea flicker this past week, Brock Vandergriff uh, in week one, where there's a double move called and there's separation there. Bobo is not playing quarterback. Bobo is not playing offensive line. And as I watch the film, one, there are shot plays that are being called that we're not hitting. Two, that blame doesn't just fall at Carson Beck or Brock Vandergriff or whatever quarterbacks in that position. Uh, one, they you know, a they have to throw the pull the trigger sometimes and, and make those shots. The, the flea flicker on Saturday, Marcus Rosemey, Jack Saint, that's a touchdown. Even Brock Vandergriff, who was the targeted receiver on that play, you know, a better ball, that's a 30-yard gain. That's a big play right there. So Bobo's calling the play. With that said, there's times where I'm watching the receivers on the back end and I'm like, golly, why aren't we hitting him? And then I, I flip the film to the, the box view, and you understand why. Because Carson's under pressure. He's avoiding a defender in his face and doesn't have the opportunity to progress through his reads. Now, uh, he he deserves some of the credit slash blame in this scenario as well. There, there's times where, you know, you're going to have to throw the ball into tight windows. To Beck's credit, what we are not talking about by week three is the amount of turnovers 
that this offense has caused. That is that's something that we can't overlook. He has been protective of the ball and and hit checkdowns and you know the Warren Buffett saying of uh, you're you're never going to go broke sure. by making a profit. Sure, you know there's there's some wisdom there. With that said, you have to be able to pull the trigger and and throw the ball into tight windows in uh, on Saturdays. That that's the expectation. So you know there is again. I guess you, you see me as the middle of the road guy. But there's truth to it. It's not the extremes. There's opportunity for uh, more shot plays being called, but it, it comes down to execution. If, if anything, there are three areas that stand out to me. One, the performance of the offensive line has to get better. So uh, I, I appreciate the fact that Fairchild came in and, and played and contributed. As a matter of fact, I think when Mims comes back, I think there's opportunity now for Fairchild and Trust to kind of be on rotation because uh, Trust has underperformed, and he's not alone. I think uh, Tate Ratledge, Amarius Mims, and Cedric Von Prime Granger, so center to the right side of our offensive line, needs to be a strength, and at times has been, but it's the consistency piece. And, you know, uh, for those guys, for in the interior of this offensive line, uh, it has to be a strong suit for this offense and hasn't been to the level that it can be to this point. Now, the the expectation is improvement, and this group is certainly capable of it. So that's number one. Number two is the run, running back room. A healthy Dejan, uh, Dejan makes a world of difference. He is, in my opinion, by far the best back we have. And if you could have given him the ball 35 times, on Saturday and not worried that you're going to continue to flare up an injury, it probably would have happened. But he's been on a pitch count, right? It's the first time you've seen him come into action. Yeah. The health of Milton is a factor. The health of that entire room is a factor. Losing Roderick early on to a seasoning-ending injury is a problem. So the fact that Dylan Bell can, can come in there and get some reps and cash along with him is a good thing, but it certainly speaks to a bigger issue that we don't have that running back room that we've had in years past. All right, last point here uh, as to reasons why this offense uh, hasn't performed to the expectation, and that's coming from the tight end room. And I understand Brock Bowers is one of the very best in the country at what he does, and I appreciate that. But for us to be... uh, to maximize our potential, we need more out of that run or that tight end room, and and I'm going to include uh, the third tackle in that discussion. Okay. So if we're going to run the ball efficiently and consistently, we've got to have more from that position group. So if Oscar Delp is the only other option for an inline tight end, it doesn't have to be at Darnell Washington level dominance but we do have to get productivity there. For the edge of our offensive line, whether it's a tight end or a slot receiver, we've got to be able to to block better than what we have. And, you know, I'm going to put that at the feet of the tight end group. I'd also like, you know, if if we're saying our wants and needs, I'd like to see more productivity just from a, you know, traditional tight end receiving role. So, Seeing Brock Bowers on an in route, an out route, and a seam route, instead of having to generate 
you know, the tight end screen, the jet sweep that we've seen from him. They're trying to get him the ball in unconventional ways. Can we also complement that with more traditional tight end play, whether it's Bowers or Delp or that third tackle? I think it makes our offense a, a more complete uh, and threatening group that we haven't seen through the first quarter of the season. I think that's really interesting. I want to talk more about Carson Beck with you here in just a moment. Let me remind folks, this is our uh, Marlowe's Tavern Insider Update with John Stinchcomb here on Dog Nation Daily. Fascinating uh, evaluation coming from John there on that. And, of course, your invitation exists right now to become a member of the Marlowe's Tavern Insider Club and take advantage of great offers when it comes to enjoying the chef-inspired food and the craft cocktails that make Marlowe's Tavern famous, including the one right there in your neighborhood, potentially there as well. Really easy to sign up. Just go to marlowestavern.com. You can join for free. And then after doing so, you get a great incentive just for signing up. $10 off your $30 offer just for signing up there at marlowestavern.com. And then after that, you're in the Insiders Club. And here's how that works. You can go to Marlowe's Tavern, spend at least $15 on food or beverage, and that earns you what's known as a qualified visit. Then once you get four qualified visits, you're going to receive a complimentary entree reward up to $20 on your next visit. You can do that in any of the Marlowe's Taverns, including your favorite one, perhaps right there in your neighborhood. You also get really cool stuff in your, on your birthday, uh, things there as well. So it's Marlowe'sTavern.com for more on that. That's Marlowe'sTavern.com for more on that. All right, John, we'll finish with this. I'm, I love the information and the analysis from you here today. So when I look at the situation with Carson Beck, it seems like two things are fairly obvious, and perhaps they're not in conflict. It seems like they believe right now Beck is clearly the best option for Georgia at quarterback. They named him as a starter a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Kirby was pretty complimentary of Beck after the game. We're going to hear more of that on our show before we're done here today. And yet, while they seemingly like a lot of what they see from Beck and clearly view him as the most capable of their quarterbacks right now in terms of being the starter – It also seems like either Beck hasn't earned their trust or they don't want to fully extend that trust because they are treating him very, very carefully here right now, avoiding turnovers. And I guess if you want to go back to a bad game against South Carolina a couple of years ago, it was turnovers that ultimately plagued Georgia in that loss. So perhaps it's smart that they are going so far out of their way to avoid these turnovers. But boy, they are really calling a very careful game around Beck right now. Hard not to notice that. Do you believe these Georgia coaches trust Carson Beck? Yeah, I don't think it's a trust issue. And I would say this, I think there's opportunities there that we haven't hit on. So there are plays that there's open wide receivers down the field. And uh, so I consider those shot plays. There's wide receivers that are uh, running routes that are past that 20, 25-yard mark that uh, for various reasons, and uh, you know, I've hit on a couple of those already, we haven't taken those shots. Um, I'd also say this. We run a, a handful of RPO plays. At this point, there's no quarterback keep threat that has kept a defense honest. So if we're going to run them, we got to be able to actually execute on them. And right now we're just running them as, as run plays, which leaves an unblocked defender making a lot of tackles in, in on those particular set of plays. So – if that's you know if that's the leash on Beck, if you will, we got to let that off because it's it's affecting our efficiency. For the shot plays, there's two things that come in fold. One, can we call more? Yes, but when we do call them, we got to hit on them. Two I've already highlighted in this segment, but 
there are others there that there is opportunity we just can't execute on. And, and I'm going to go back to the offensive line performance. At times, the protection, especially in week one and week two, uh, allowed for a quarterback to sit back there and kind of go through his progression and, and take his shots. And maybe Carson wasn't quite as comfortable and, and hit some checkdowns. So, you know, there's some growth there from the quarterback position. This past week, what I saw for those shots, for those routes that are extending and are stretching a defense, and I'm saying, all right, why aren't we hitting them? You look back and you're like, well, there's a defender in the quarterback's face, so he's either either moved off his spot and, and hitting check downs, or his eyes are being pulled from those initial targets. So there is, you know, again, credit and blame across the board uh, can we call more shots? Yes. Can we hit the shots that are called? Yes. So from the quarterback spot, and we've got to provide a pocket offensive line that allows him to keep his eyes downfield so that he hits it. So that's three different reasons that, that we can uh, see or hope for growth. And, and one, calling more shots. Two, being able to actually throw them, uh, whether it's the quarterback you know, seeing that as a window that he can take or the offensive line providing that platform that he's willing and, and able to see and pull the trigger on. John, I love it. Great stuff. Thank you for being here as part of our Marlowe's Tavern Insider Update here today. Uh, obviously, I think you and I both believe this is a Georgia team that's got a lot of successful moments still to come this season and some work to do right now to prepare itself to get ready for those. So we appreciate your diagnosis of everything. A fun conversation. We'll look forward to uh, talking with you again about all of this again next week at the same time. Yeah, and I'd say this about this Georgia group. I, I still think they're the number one team in the country. I think the offense uh, will have its best days ahead of them. I think a healthy group certainly uh, will factor into that, getting a guy like Lab back, figuring out uh, a way to get a better performance out of this offensive front, the offensive line specifically, uh, and, and more from that tight end position is only going to help. But for those calling for – changes already i think the the approach has got to be we need to be able to do meat and potatoes really well before we start looking at you know the the variety pack and and uh, accompaniments that might come with it so um that that's not only for carson and mike bobo who are both new uh to their respective roles but as an entire group that you know as we build throughout this season and luckily this schedule provides an opportunity for that, that there is literally not another team in this country that you'd want to trade positions with. It's not like there's a, a, a locker room that you're going, man, I like what they have better than what Georgia has. It's a matter of uh, continuing to develop and get better and, and play as a unit. And then we're going to see a much better overall performance. And, you know, BA, we, we didn't really talk about the defense, and I'm going long, and you have to bear with me. No problem. But what we saw on, on Saturday from that side is something that's not been characteristic, yeah. which is missed tackles and uh, opportunities to, to make plays or get off the field and not being able to hit on those. So there's, there's some growth opportunity on that side of the ball as well. And, and, I understand not having Javon Bullard is a major factor in yeah. that, but if your number is called, you have to execute. And uh, for for two 
talented linebackers and Smile and Jamon. Both of those guys are, are two that, you know, there are some particular plays where they had some opportunities that we need them to execute on. So what we're seeing is a cross-section of younger players, reserve players, but also, and this is on both sides of the ball, some veteran guys that we need more consistency from. And I think long-term we can expect from them because that's where the standard is. And the standard for Georgia is consistency. And we, we didn't see that on Saturday. What we saw is flashes. And those flashes has become the standard. John, that's well said. We appreciate your time. Sorry. Sorry to be long. No, it's great stuff. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, brother. Let's take a look around the rest of the league. This is SEC Through. Obviously, a lot of passion from a guy in John Stinchcomb who loves this football team, loves his alma mater, and really, really interesting. And I want to respond to a little bit of this. And I promise uh, after this, I want to get into some other stuff around the SEC here. So I'm going to try to, to make this as succinct as I, I possibly can. Some people will hear, you know, the discussion of the first, you know, half hour or so of this show. And they're going to say, but yeah, but you know, Georgia still won. There was still a lot of good, and that's absolutely true. And obviously, we got an entire week to talk about everything that happens, you know, from a game like this. And as John Stinchcomb mentioned, the fact that Dejon Edwards, after not playing the first two games, the fact that he steps back on the football field and gives Georgia a hundred plus yard rushing effort, Georgia needed that on Saturday, and Georgia needs that the rest of the way. That was a real bright spot, and it should not be missed. You know, John mentioned a couple of defensive issues, but in the second half of this game. Georgia also became much more effective with its pass rush. I thought Mikael Williams led the way. Uh, Now, South Carolina had not really been good protecting along the offensive line, so maybe some of that's opponent-directed, but still, but still. uh, Georgia got after with the pass rush. Mikael Williams kind of led the way there on that. That's another bright spot that I think that you got to point out. And, you know, when you look at the two key injuries, not just the Mims thing that happened during the game, but the fact that Ladd McConkey doesn't dress, the fact that Javon Bullard doesn't play, you know, a big important piece on defense and a big important piece on offense not even being a part of this game, you know, for most teams, that'd be a huge issue. We don't really judge Georgia on that kind of stuff. We, we hold Georgia against a pretty harsh curve from the standpoint of no matter who's playing, we expect Georgia to be kind of a championship level. Most teams would probably have a little bit more of a drop-off if one of the leading returning receivers in the SEC, in this case McConkie, uh, an MVP-level player from college football playoff games a year ago, in this case, Bullard, if they weren't playing, we might expect a drop-off. From Georgia, we don't really expect much of a drop-off in that, which kind of gives you an idea of how harsh of a curve we sort of grade Georgia against when it comes to these kind of things. And then one more point, and then we'll move on. The other context that kind of comes around a discussion like this, which has probably mostly been negative, even though Georgia won against South Carolina on Saturday, is, hey, folks, let's not forget, Georgia's won the last two national championships. Of course, that's true. And I would say that for those of us who are fans, and I am certainly in that category, all of the chatter around Georgia football should have a little bit of a softer edge to it because the fact that we have enjoyed so much success as Georgia fans, and we believe there's more success on the way. So hopefully all of this chatter has a little bit of a softer edge to it because of the success that George's enjoyed. But keep this in mind, those of us who are college football fans, and specifically those of us who are Georgia football fans, the way that college football fans show their love for the sport and their favorite team is by these kinds of discussions. And sometimes these kinds of discussions turn into arguments. You know, you and I may believe exactly the same stuff about what Georgia needs to do better, or you may think something different, and so therefore we get on here and we argue about it. 
doesn't mean we're mad at each other or mad at Georgia. It just means that this is how we show our love for Georgia football or our love for college football by having these intense discussions. You know, in the roundabout you know scheme of the uh, world, it may not be all that important, but we take all this stuff very important because of this is how much we love the sport, how much we love this particular team. This is just sort of what we do for fun, and I think it's important to keep that context in mind with all of this there as well. So with that said, let's get ready to go cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. And speaking of having fun, boy, 2024 going to provide some great opportunities for you to do that with Royal Caribbean. January, the debut of Icon of the Seas. What an amazing cruise ship that's going to be, the largest cruise ship ever constructed. It sets sail in January, and it's going to be amazing. I can't wait for you all to see that. How about April of 2024? On board the Dog Nation cruise with us on board Allure of the Seas. We talked to some folks on Saturday who are going to be at the Dog Nation cruise, and I told them, I said, hey, bigger and better than ever before. Can't wait for all of the Dog Nation folks to experience, at least for the first time on a Dog Nation cruise, an Oasis-class ship, one of the largest ships at sea, the largest category of ship currently at sea. That's what Allure of the Seas is, and the specialty dining, the wonderful entertainment options, the kind of things that you can only get on a ship this size. The Dog Nation Cruise gets a chance to have that there in April. And then July of 2024, and I don't know that of all the cool stuff going on with Royal Caribbean right now, this isn't the thing I'm the most excited about. The debut of Utopia of the Seas, the brand new Oasis-class ship going out of Port Canaveral and on those three- and four-night sailings. Because, listen, I have a busy family. A lot of you are busy families there, too. And you know that kind of committing yourself to the full seven-day cruise, while that's probably my favorite kind of cruise to take, it's not always the easiest cruise option to select because of, well, so-and-so's got this going on and -and so-and-so's got that going on. The three- and four-night cruises oftentimes are a little bit easier to book. And yet now the brand-new Oasis-class ship known as Utopia of the Seas, specially constructed just for these kinds of sailings going out of Port Canaveral, it's going to be an amazing experience. So Jessica Slater is a great travel agent. She can tell you all about this. Call her, 770-718-9147. That's 770-718-9147. Email her, jslater at dreamvacations.com. jslater, dreamvacations.com. Or royaldogs.com if you want more on the Dog Nation cruise. Once again, royaldogs.com. All right, so thankfully... Georgia played just well enough on Saturday that I feel like without coming across as a total hypocrite, we can laugh at Alabama, we can laugh at Tennessee, we can really mock those around the SEC who are less fortunate than us. I feel like we're within our rights to be able to do that. Alabama is a disaster right now, a disaster. And I think most people are going to rightly look at the situation to play Tyler Buckner as the starting quarterback on Saturday, essentially demoting uh, last week's starter Jalen Milrow down to the number three role. I think most people are going to view this rightly so as a panic move on the part of Nick Saban. It was. It absolutely was. Listen, uh, Jalen Milrow is a very limited quarterback, but it's fairly obvious based on the performance of Milrow that he is Alabama's best overall option here. And the tea leaves in the summer and in the spring we're pretty much all leading us in this direction. I want to make a large point about college football here for a moment as it specifically relates to Alabama. You know, we are oftentimes in college football on guard for any kind of surprise this sport might throw at us. But in order for an event to be a surprise, by definition, what that means is, is that more often than not, college football delivers what we expect it to deliver. And in situations like this, it's a reminder that sometimes conventional wisdom does hold. 
And and in fact, more often than not, conventional wisdom is going to hold up. And the conventional wisdom in spring and summer was that, boy, it certainly doesn't seem like Alabama's got much of a quarterback. Well, guess what? For a support that can often surprise us, sometimes things work out exactly the way it seems they're probably going to. And Alabama never really did have a quarterback. The absence of chatter around a Buckner or a Simpson would have kind of led you to believe because sometimes the dog that isn't barking is the most interesting thing. And the absence of positive rumors, the absence of chatter kind of just sort of bolstered the point of, gosh, Nick Saban and here in 2023 has kind of gotten caught without a quarterback. Now, Kirk Herbstreit didn't know that because by his own admission, he wasn't paying attention to college ball during the offseason. Herbstreit's a man that's just spread too thin right now. He's doing these Amazon games on Thursday night. He's traveling around doing these, you know, uh, ABC games, things like that, still hosting game day. Herbstreit just doesn't have enough time to devote to the sport anymore, and he pretty clearly got caught with his pants down with his preseason evaluation, thinking that Alabama, through sheer force of will of Nick Saban, was going to overcome the fact that Alabama did not have a quarterback. In fact, I'm not even sure that Herb Street even knew how much Alabama's quarterbacks were struggling during the offseason. But those of us who kind of live and breathe this sport 12 months out of the year, we were fully aware of that. And there's no magic trick here. There's no rabbit to pull out of a hat. Bama does not have a quarterback. And for a program that, by Saban's own choosing, became so quarterback dependent over the course of the last five years or so, being caught with someone as limited as Milrow is, further limited as Tyler Buckner is, because if Buckner had stayed at Notre Dame, he'd been the number three quarterback there too. This is not a – and he may know the Tommy Reese offense or you know familiarity with, with Reese as an offensive coordinator, but he's just not good. And that was made painfully obvious in a pretty struggling win for Bama at South Florida on Saturday. So we think that Alabama eventually is going to play better along its offensive line. They've had some massive offensive line struggles, and they're probably going to still be a pretty good defensive team. It took some really big shots from uh, Quinn Ewers and a very good crop of Texas wide receivers to exploit the Bama secondary. So eventually, Alabama is going to still be more good than not. I think that 10-2 and two is a possibility. 9-3 and three may be more likely, but this is not an elite Alabama team right now. And Saban's inability to make a quality hired offensive coordinator and find a top flight quarterback, the two things that he's really relied on for most of you know the last few years, that may be the biggest reason why. And the fact that no great offensive coordinator and no great quarterback wanted to come to Alabama, even with the possibility of, in the case of the quarterback, big NIL rumors and things like that, boy, that ought to lead you if you're an Alabama fan to really open your eyes about what might be going on there. The fact that no one wanted to hitch their wagon to Saban at this stage of his career. Very, very interesting stuff. Florida also beats Tennessee on Saturday. Game marred at the end by, I thought, some pretty sloppy stuff in the part of Tennessee, calling a timeout and kind of leading to some pushing and shoving there. I think that Josh Heupel probably takes the blame for some of that. I'm not going to make too much out of the uh, Florida uh, win here. I mean, we told you from the word go last week, this was a very tough spot for Tennessee. The Tennessee was very much overvalued. And how many times have you heard me say this, that while we didn't give Florida any shot in beating Utah, that people were going to overreact after Florida lost to Utah, which is exactly what happened. Florida's not a good football team, but we told you over and over, they're not going 2-10. and 10. They're not going 3-9. and nine. You know, five and seven, I think is probably in play for them. They perhaps six and six, maybe uh, could possibly get to seven and five. Uh, but at home, 
against Tennessee. That's a spot they've had lots of success over the years. For decades, they've had success against Tennessee in this spot. We just thought uh, that Florida would be pretty dangerous. It turns out that is indeed the case. Now, here's what I think becomes interesting for Tennessee moving forward. It's fairly obvious that Joe Milton, who's had two cracks uh, at this before, two bites of the apple before, to be starting quarterback at Michigan, starting quarterback at Tennessee. Remember back in 2021, he was the initial quarterback tab to be the starter then. He's failed both times. It seems fairly obvious that Joe Milton is just a long, far cry from what Hendon Hooker was. It comes down to accuracy. Milton's got a much stronger arm, but he's not nearly as accurate. And Hooker's success in the Josh Heupel offense you know, was so much built in the fact that he could put the football right where it needed to be. I believe he also had a better crop of receivers, too. Right now, there's just not a Jalen Hyatt on this roster. There's probably not a Cedric Tillman either. Um, but Milton's a big drop-off from Hendon Hooker. And we said that this could happen, right? Uh, going back to the offseason, we talked about the, the fact that Milton was not only unproven, if anything, he had had chances where he kind of proved that he was somewhat limited. And so now you're left to wonder, especially with Georgia – you know, this matters to us, looming as a game in November for Tennessee. By the time we get there, are you talking about a guy like Nico Imaleva stepping in and becoming the Tennessee quarterback? And does Imaleva, who's a freshman, they're allegedly paying big bucks to through NIL, does he have a much higher ceiling than Joe Milton? Could Tennessee find a much better level of play if they eventually trend, you know, kind of sort of move on to uh Imaleva as quarterback and move away from transition away from Joe Milton as the starting quarterback that's probably the thing worth watching here right now Tennessee's got a little bit of a tricky non-conference game this Saturday uh Texas San Antonio UTSA they haven't played great yet this season I don't think but Tennessee's only about a two touch fa- touchdown favorite against the Roadrunners on Saturday so uh, keep your eye on Tennessee perhaps maybe a little bit there I'll also mention this here real quick one of the things I'm going to do more on tomorrow because I think it deserves a little bit more time than I can give it right now, is what LSU did on Saturday. That was, I think, a statement game for LSU. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. For now, let me mention this. Auburn is at Texas A&M on Saturday. Could Auburn win that game? You better believe they could. You better believe they could. And if they do, two weeks from now, when Georgia goes to Auburn, as we predicted during the offseason, as we talked about during the summer, Jordan-Hare Stadium could really be rocking for that game then. So really keep your eyes on that. Keep your mind on what could be a very big game for Georgia at Auburn in two weeks. Is Auburn a good team? No, probably not. The uh, game two weeks ago at Cal leads you to believe they have some offensive limitations for certain. Uh, You know, the transfer quarterback market just was not great for SEC teams this year. And Auburn, I think, probably did the best that it could. But could they perform well enough this week to make Jordan-Hare Stadium a really loud environment two Saturdays from now? I believe they possibly could. Now, the other game on the Georgia schedule – that suddenly looks a little bit more interesting is the game against Missouri. Missouri gets a win on Saturday against the reigning Big 12 champions in Kansas State. Now, I was on the Kansas State side, but I also said, boy, something about this feels weird. You know, Missouri's only about a four and a half point underdog. The line actually got even smaller than that, you know, prior to a, a kickoff that Missouri seemingly was being shown some respect that on paper did not quite seem that it deserved. It only beaten, uh, middle tennessee state by small number of points in the previous week that somebody seemed to know something that i didn't well somebody always knows something i don't apparently because missouri actually wins the game and luther burden was fantastic so missouri has got a little bit of an interesting slate here coming up they got lsu coming up here pretty soon but they've got a game against south carolina not only is that winnable uh 
Eli Drinkwitz never lost to South Carolina, I don't think. So that's a game that Missouri typically does win. That you could very easily in a few weeks here see Missouri coming into Athens with perhaps only one loss. Now, that's putting a lot of carts before a lot of horses. But the Missouri win against Kansas State, I think for a Tigers team that's now 3-0, and I think you have to say, hey, that there's something to that there. That that game could potentially in Georgia, because keep in mind, last year Missouri obviously had a little bit of a recipe for playing it close with UGA, uh, certainly in its home stadium, and now it travels to Athens. Uh, perhaps Missouri worth keeping your eye on here. They certainly got one of the more eye-opening results on Saturday, beating the defending uh, Big 12 champion in Kansas State. And then finally, I'll give you this. I did not stay up all the way to the end of the Colorado-Colorado State game. Watched most of that, fell asleep, woke up late fourth quarter, saw some more, then fell asleep again. There's just only so much I can do to keep my eyes open sometimes. Uh, some of these games just get pretty late, and this one was very late. I don't think it ended until about 2.30 in the morning here on the East Coast. But the point is, it was a thrilling win for Colorado, and Colorado is a thrilling team here right now. Are they overvalued and overhyped and overdiscussed? Maybe so, but you can't deny the entertainment value right now is through the roof. You know, Dion and Jay Norvell going back and forth. Um, what Shador Sanders does, leading the 98-yard drive. And I realize it's not everybody's cup of tea. I would say that I am way more pro Dion than not. Dion was an Atlanta icon when I, when I was a kid. I have great respect for that. I Y'all know, kind of like pro wrestling and Carnival Barker, you know, ringmaster type stuff. Uh, you know, Dion's very good at cultivating attention. He's very good at generating hype. And I think that's an important job for a coach. And so I respect his ability to do that. I haven't loved all of his annex since being at Colorado. I thought some of the stuff he did prior to this game were not quite my cup of tea. But here's the nature of things that go viral. Things have to be at least a little bit controversial to go viral. If everybody agrees on it, nobody talks about it. And so Dion wouldn't be as talked about, buzzed about, as famous as become if it wasn't bothering somebody somewhere. That's just the nature of virality, if that's even a word. That's just a nature of, of, of things that spread, go viral, that become very well known. There has to be a little bit of conflict there. There has to be a little bit of an edge there. Otherwise, people would not be talking about it. So Dion is like any kind of like, you know, uh, 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 divisive politician or anything like that. There has to be a little bit of a conflict in order for the public to gather around it. And clearly, Dion's got that. The other thing I'll say about Dion here for a moment is, and really this is kind of maybe more about Shador Sanders too. Looking at Shador here for a moment, how many Power Five teams would have made Shador Sanders their starting quarterback when he was coming out of high school if Deion Sanders wasn't the coach? Probably not that many, right? I mean, Shador was a prospect, but it's not like a lot of teams were really that deep and far down the road on Shador Sanders, and plenty of people back at the time had said Shador should have gotten more of a look. Sometimes that just doesn't happen. And Dion as a coach, you know, uh, Dion kind of went the kind of non-traditional route, ended up at a place like Jackson State, which I think he loved and obviously had great respect for the HBCU there. But in terms of a kind of guy who committing himself to being a coach, there was a lot of the coaching, you know, I guess the uh, administrative world that would have said, hey, we want to see something from you before we're willing to make you our coach. And even after having success at Jackson State, Dion was not the kind of coach that every program would want to hire because of the fact that he does bring just so much attention with him and he is such a non-traditional coach but when you see Colorado and who knows how much success they'll end up having there's obviously still a lot of football left to go here but they are the talk of the college football world through three games rightly or wrongly everyone's talking about Colorado and prior to this season no one's been talking about Colorado 
They had not been on game day since like the mid-90s or something like that. This is a team that's been largely absent from the national zeitgeist when it comes to college football for a long time. But they rolled the dice on Deion Sanders, and Deion Sanders selected his son as starting quarterback, which would have also recognized a little bit of a dice roll for some of the other teams that did not necessarily view Shadur as a successful Power 5 level quarterback. And what I think the response to the Sanders era that's gotten started here at Colorado, what I think it should be is, is that for these programs that have nothing going for them, like what's to stop you from taking a chance? Take a chance on a coach. Take a chance on a quarterback. Take a chance on something that maybe conventional wisdom says, are you sure? You know, Dion, a little bit of a non-traditional coach. Shador Sanders, our scout said that he wasn't the kind of quarterback we want to make an offer to. Are you sure on all this kind of stuff? Um, you know, I think that's one of those things that um, maybe more teams out there just ought to take chances. Now, sometimes when you take chances, it's not going to work out for you. But clearly, Colorado has elevated their program dramatically just because they had the foresight to give a guy like Dion the chance that he wanted and Dion giving a chance to some you know guys that maybe not everybody in the Power Five was as you know lined up to get involved with. But there are a lot of teams that probably weren't all that interested in Shador Sanders the first time around that certainly wish they had him as a quarterback here right now. And I think there's a lesson to be learned from that. I really do. And that is Cruiser on the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. Now, speaking of all this fun college football stuff and all the things that are out there, it just reminds us how much we love this time of year with college football and, of course, those Fansville commercials from Dr. Pepper out there as well. Y'all know I love Dr. Pepper, and I've always been so proud of the connection that Dr. Pepper has to the sport of college football. I don't think there's any company that's more connected to college football on the national level than what our friends at Dr. Pepper are. So when you think about game day coming back around here this upcoming weekend there as well, uh, stop by your local Kroger today and get yourself some rich, delicious, one-of-a-kind Dr. Pepper because Dr. Pepper is the one the fans deserve. And as we wrap up today, as I said before, thankfully, Georgia does just well enough on Saturday that we can kind of make fun of the Alabamas and the Tennessees and teams like that. In fact, that's the subject of our golden shoes here today. So let's see the first one of those. We'll give credit here to UGA Chris, who shares this that somebody put out online. Uh, They call it an exclusive look at Tennessee heading back to Neyland Stadium. Yeah, the Vol Navy, the uh, boats on fire there. That's not really outside Neyland Stadium. It's just a funny uh, joke. Uh, maybe the burrow, but I don't know. But anyway, uh, uh, so making fun of Tennessee, sailing back to a Neyland Stadium. Uh, yeah, kind of a mess there. UGA Chris, we're laughing about that. Of course, these Vols fans have been taking shots at our dog nation invasion of the Tennessee River, but they got their own issues on the Tennessee River right now, it would seem. And Chris is good to point that out. Our buddy Mad Dog sending this to us there as well. He said, when your South Florida trip didn't go quite as good as you expected, you see a beat up elephant. Uh, the South Florida Bull, not too much better off. But, boy, Alabama, certainly below expectations down there in Tampa. Uh, Mad Dog with the caption, Bama wins, but just barely. Yeah, you better believe, Mad Dog. A lot to laugh about when it comes to Alabama. So we'll give you a golden shoe as well. And speaking of things to laugh about, Tenant Florida may have gotten themselves a win on Saturday, but we don't think that success lasts for them. And we know it doesn't. Exactly 40 days from right now, Georgia back in Jacksonville beating Florida again. That's our Gator Hater countdown. And with that, a very long edition of Dog Nation Daily presented by Pella Window and Door of Georgia comes to an end.